Please, please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Be reading verses 1 through 13. Hear now God's Word. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones, A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God." I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which has already been and what is to be has already been, and God requires an account of what is past. Thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. Looking back before we get to chapter 3, chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon talks about the irreducible laws of inheritance, where he tells us that the fruit of all of our labor is left to others. Helps gives up, give us some perspective. That a man has no control over who the others will be. He, can, he directs that as well. The irreducible laws of economics in chapter 2, the wealth that wealth is a sovereign gift of God, that wealth is ultimately ultimately a blessing to the righteous, and ultimately it is a curse to the unrighteous. Solomon's conclusions in chapter 2, that all a man's labor under the sun, that is, if we were to set aside God and eternity and just think about life in this world only, life under the sun is empty. It is vanity. There's nothing better, he says in verse 24 of chapter 2, than for a man to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. And and Solomon does then, though at the end of that chapter, begin to bring out a difference in some men. In other words, it's not the same for everyone. The man that is good in God's sight versus the sinner. So chapter 2, the last verse, 26. For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. So that's the backdrop 
of our opening here in chapter 3. And chapter 3 starts with a very familiar passage. A popular song was written based on this text, Turn, Turn, to Everything There Is a Season, written by Pete Seeger in the late 1950s and first recorded by the Birds in 1959. While this text might be familiar, it's also a greatly misunderstood passage. It's actually a great expression of the way people live their lives before the Lord. This chapter begins with the second section of Solomon's argument. And so, before we get to this section, it's good that we should look ahead to what his conclusion is. In chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, he says, Here is what I've seen. Remember, Solomon is basically contest, uh, conducting this big experiment on life. He's a wealthy man. And so he's going to try all kinds of things to see, is this the meaning of life? Is this the meaning of life? What, what value is there in food or education or uh, all these various experiences? And he says, here is what I've seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for that is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is a gift from God. uh, For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. And so when we bring God back into it, when God is central to our lives, then all of these things we do day in and day out, the routine things, the ups, the downs, have meaning, have value, and indeed enable us to have joy. I think about James talks about consider it all joy when you face various trials. So even there we can have a joy. That doesn't mean we're laughing or giggling about it. Uh, It's painful. But there's purpose and there's meaning, and we recognize that if we are not just trying to live a life apart from him. And so we must never forget that this is a book that that instructs us in exuberant joy. When Solomon arrives at his conclusion of joy, he's not talking about a blind leap into the dark. He's not pulling an elephant out of a hat. Uh, What he says follows from his premise. The basis for this joy is this. The principle of divine sovereignty. The principle of divine sovereignty is the basis of our joy. I'm amazed at how some people, some Christians, even react negatively to the Bible's teaching on the absolute sovereignty of God. The reason they do, I think, is because many times we just want to be in charge of our own lives, or we think we do. Uh, They want to predestined the outcome of everything. But it's God who has the whole world in his hand, including the days of our lives. The first first verse says that there is a time and a season for everything under heaven. So who apportions these times and these seasons? All of these tasks which follow are God-given, according to verse 10. He makes everything beautiful in its own time. Everything. God's inscrutable actions, verse 11, are forever, verse 14. If it's good, then God gave it. 
And if it's painful, then God gave it. Exodus 4.11 So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who has made the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? We're not ashamed of that. We're going to see that that is going to be the basis of our comfort. In short, God has an eternal plan for the cosmos, and He has an eternal plan for you. When looked at from our perspective, that is, under the sun, everything, including our daily routines, end in vanity. What was that worth? But when we remember that God has placed all things where they are, and He's placed them there at the right time, then everything, including all those routine, routine things, turns out to be beautiful. It's part of the whole picture. And so we should look ahead to verse 14 where he says, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Think of so many things we do, I can't remember. Uh, and they're gone. They're, they're, they seem to have faded into oblivion. The older I get, the more that is. But not so with God. He hasn't forgotten anything. Everything is forever. It shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing taken from it. God does it. Why? So that men should fear before Him. It's to teach us that He's God and we're not. Our smallness and His greatness is going to be our comfort. God does what He does so that men should fear. We should recognize that at the end of the day, we are not in charge and that is a good thing. A man who reads this, without some trepidation, has forgotten who he is and has forgotten who God is. So let's look at the sovereign providence of God or the provision of God. I call your attention to the Heidelberg Catechism, which we read from time to time, of course, as part of our doctrinal standard. And question 27 asks, what do you understand by the providence of God? And the answer is the almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Question 28, what does it profit us to know that God created and by his providence upholds all things? The answer, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future, have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Solomon has in this passage covered practically every aspect of life. Twenty-eight times the word time is used, fourteen pairs of opposites, things common to our experience, from one extreme to the other, the ups and the downs like the ocean. 
Life under the sun is constant change. The creature exists in time. That's me and you. And time is change. It is a succession of moments. The future is constantly becoming the past. Man is never what he was, nor will he be what he is. But God is constant. Infinite fullness. He is unchangeable. Now many people see the providence of God in the big things. The eruptions of a volcano, a hurricane, an earthquake, a tornado. Insurance companies call these acts of God. The devastation of war, the ravages of a plague. And so certain people will grant that God deals with the masses, but not the individual, the seas, but not the drops. Yet if God's hand controls the great things, it must necessarily control the minute. How can God control the mass and not the atom? We must believe in all chance or all God. Those are our two choices. We can't have it both ways. The famous anonymous poem makes this point. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a nail. This famous passage in Ecclesiastes 3 is a description of God's determinations. We're being told that we have been placed in a world that we did not create, that we did not plan, and that this world has various repetitive cycles to which cycles we have been assigned by someone else. We're under the authority of these repetitions and have been placed under that authority by the hand and by the purpose of God. And of course, there is a time to be born and a time to die, and who sets those times? Who, dic- who dictated and arranged for his own birthday? God appoints our birthday, he appoints our funeral day, and no one asked for their first birthday, it was thrust upon each of us, as Job and the psalmist observed in Job 14. Five, since man's days are determined, the number of his months is with you, Lord. You have appointed his limits so that no one can pass. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they are all written. All these ladies that are among us that are expecting little ones right now, their names are written in God's book and their days are numbered. Days, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. But God isn't just concerned with man. His sovereign control extends over everything. Our Lord Jesus taught that it includes the hairs of our heads and the birds of the air. Solomon shows us that the lifespan of plants in the field is determined by God. There is a time to plant, a time to harvest. God appoints the birthday of every plant and the funeral of every plant. Who can say that his life ended because God glanced away for a moment? 
wasn't paying attention. When men are thrust into the turmoil of war, some of them think that they are shaping their own destiny. But the Bible tells us that every arrow, every bullet follows the path ordained by it before the worlds were made. I know that that what I'm saying in all of this, I know that what the Bible is saying in all of this is unnerving to a lot of people. But I'm going to argue and conclude as we come, as we draw this together, that this, without this, we ought to be horrified. We ought to be shaking in our boots. King Ahab thought that he could thwart the words of God by putting on a different set of clothes, as though God would be squinting at the battle from a distance. Who is that? I don't recognize him. 1 Kings 22, 28 and 34, but an arrow by chance struck him at the joint of his armor. And not a word of the prophet fell to the ground. God is sovereign in the time of construction. Verse 5, sometimes we cast stones, other times we gather them. God gives the time of demolition. When a building falls, whether through man's intention or not, the Lord has appointed the time. All construction is futile apart from his purpose. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Not surprisingly, this means that even grieving is from his will. He appoints the time of mourning. And some time elapses, and then he appoints dancing. When a man's soul is cast down, he may turn to the Lord with his lament. As the psalmist said in Psalm 102, For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away, my days are like a shadow that lengthens, and I wither away like the grass. And when the prayer is answered, His gladness may also be attributed to the goodness of the one who gave it. We tear our clothes in grief, thus this is from the Lord, and we sow in order to clothe ourselves again. This grief is his gift, and so is the restoration. The Christian cannot be robbed of God's providence. Theologian Benjamin Warfield wrote this. We're not God's providence overall. In other words, if God is not in control of everything, could trouble come without his sending? In other words, if, it, if, if, if God were not in control, uh, could trouble come without his sending? Were Christians the possible prey of this or the other fiendish enemy? When perchance God was musing or gone aside or on a journey or sleeping, what certainty of hope could be ours? Does God send trouble? Surely. Surely. He and he he only. To the sinner in punishment and to his children in chastisement, to suggest that it does not always come from his hands, is to take away all our comfort. The world may be black to us. There may no longer be hope in man. Anguish and trouble may be our daily portion, 
but there is this light that shines through all the darkness. We cannot be robbed of God's providence. So long as the soul keeps firm hold on this great truth, it will be able to breast or withstand all storms. God's providence is our comfort. The timing and the details of God's providence is perfect. The events of life are timed right down to the second, so that had they not occurred, had they had they occurred just a little sooner or later, they would have altered the course of history. Example: When Joseph was sent into Egypt by his brothers, Joseph said. It was God that sent me here. But notice each of the little ways through which God's great purpose of redeeming a nation was accomplished. I'm going to run through these quickly. Joseph's brothers are out with the sheep. His father wants to send a message to them. He sends Joseph. Why Joseph? Joseph's brothers, in search of a pasture, leave Shechem, where Joseph expects to find them, and they go to Dothan. Why Dothan? Joseph arrives at Dothan just when they are thinking of him and his dreams, and they put him in a pit. Some Ishmaelites come by. Why did they come by at all? Why did they come at that particular time? Why were they going to Egypt? Why was it that the Ishmaelites wanted to buy slaves and not some other commodity? Why is it that Potiphar bought him? Why is it that Potiphar has a wife and one that is so full of lust? Why does Joseph wind up in prison? How is it that the baker and the, and the butler offended their ma- master and wind up in prison with Joseph, all by chance according to the world? How is it that they both have dreams? Why is Joseph able to interpret the dreams? Why does the butler forget Joseph? If he had remembered, it would have spoiled it all. Why does Pharaoh dream? The butler then remembers Joseph, and he's brought out of prison to Pharaoh. If you take away any of these simple circumstances, break any one in the link of this chain, and the whole plan is destroyed. If you dissect this or any other event in history, you will find God in the little accidents and dealings of daily life. The good and the bad. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Job said we should receive good, should we receive good at the hand of God and not evil? So what does Joseph say at the end of that story to his brothers? You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good in order to preserve all these people alive. Did Joseph know that's how the story ended while he was going through all that? No, he didn't. He had to trust the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. Now, the very events that ruin your plans carry out the eternal purposes of God. The very events that ruin your plans carry out the eternal purposes of God. Verses 9 and 10, God has given man this task. A man works hard. He still can't control his own future. Just when he thinks all is well, the the clear sky grows cloudy, and he's faced with the reality of his extreme limitations. And so a man must acknowledge God's supreme control or else despair. 
Every season is regulated by his divine providence. Verse 11, all the changes of life under the sun seem vain, but not to God. That birth was fixed by God as well as that death, that time of war fixed by God as well as the time of peace. He has made everything beautiful in its own time. Man cannot find out, even even believers, we, we don't know what God is up to. Joseph didn't know what God was up to in the moment. We can't find it out. He doesn't sit down and tell us all the details of what he's doing and how it's going to work. He does give us the big picture. That's part of what this passage is doing. And that's what gives us comfort and hope. I don't know how this is going to work. It seems impossible. Jesus is in a grave. I saw him hanging on a cross. I don't know how God's going to do this. Despair. Until Sunday morning. He has made everything beautiful. My, uh, Psalm 31:15. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Romans 8:28. You know well. And we know. What do we know? We know that some things are in the hands of God, right? All things are in His hands, and He is working all those things together for good, all of them, for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. Is that comforting to you? Even the death of our Lord was the result of what God predetermined to happen to His Son, Acts 2.23. Jesus, being delivered by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. And if that had not happened, we wouldn't be saved. Now the conclusion. While there is constant change in this world, constant change in your life, there is steadiness in God's sovereign rule. Verses 14 and 15. God's not leaving anything out. All of his activity, we're told, has eternal purpose for individuals, for nations, and for the world. God is not like when I remember those days of putting some toy together on Christmas Eve and winding up with extra parts or missing a few. He is in charge, and eternity, he says, has been placed in our hearts. And you know that. You know this isn't it. You know that life under the sun isn't it. That'd be utter despair, wouldn't it? To know that every, every affection you've ever had, every person you've ever loved, everything you've ever built, every meal you've ever eaten, every celebration you've ever had is going to end in a big zero. God put eternity in everyone's heart. You know better. You know it. Not not hope it, not wish it. You know it. Because that's the way you're made, and He put it there. He has God made us in relation to Him, and nothing we can do will alter this. He is always our Maker. And we have always been made. He is always Creator. We are always created. 
And yes, there is mystery in this. I don't want to get around. I can't explain all this. There are a lot of questions. There's a lot more that I don't know than I do know, but what I do know comforts me. I would rather God be in charge than me be in charge. I'd rather God be in charge than chance. And it's not just a matter of what I'd rather. God put this in my heart, and I know it's true. There is mystery, but I will take the mystery of God over the vanity of man every day. God works from the beginning and all the way to the end. The believing response should be that we throw up our hands, not in despair. We throw up our hands and we have a good time. What then should we do? We must worship the one who orients all things to his ultimate glory. This this doctrine is the foundation of our joy. Rejoice, do good, eat your bread, drink your wine. Believe in the sovereign God and enjoy these inscrutable repetitions. This is his gift. Remember his judgments, verse 15, and sit down to your dinner. Gladly acknowledge God's providence over your life. That means you stop moaning about what you didn't get and what you don't have. If he wanted you to have it, you'd have it. And he's already given you way more than you deserve. All of God's providence is calculated, according to our text, to produce the fear of God, the respect of God. When a man sees his smallness... He must simultaneously see God's greatness and vice versa. While all things change, God doesn't. With God, there is no variation, no shifting shadow. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In God, there is regularity in life. The sun rises, sets, and rises again. The moon increases, decreases, and increases again. History, in some ways, repeats itself, and the seasons are managed with remarkable regularity. But God doesn't change. God's Word is suffering no setbacks. That's my word to you for 2023. You can face it with great encouragement, enthusiasm, hope. Why? Because God's on His throne. And his word always accomplishes what it's sent to do. We as God's people may take comfort in our Father's kind providence. And if we're currently experiencing a trial, we can rest in knowing it's the result of his predetermined counsel and will designed to bring about his glory and our good. No matter what our affection, affliction, uh, we may put our hope in the deliverance of God who will bring it about in due time. This is the only sane outlook in our moving, changing world. Any other view offers only blind fate or chaos. He has made everything beautiful in its own time. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see you, the world, and ourselves in the light of eternity, and help us to rest in your sovereign control of all things.
May we learn to rejoice in and for all things, knowing that you are at work in them for our good and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes is a book about perspective, how we look at the world, how we look at ourselves, how we look at time. For the unbeliever who only lives life under the sun, this life has no meaning at all. And in the end, everything is vanity, emptiness. For the believer, we can enjoy everything under the sun because everything under the sun has meaning and is related to eternity. The good and the bad. We are tempted, aren't we? Aren't you? To fret about those with power. But their power, according to the Bible, is an illusion. It is temporary. It is frail. It is fleeting. How do I know that? Because I figured it out. Did I read about it on the internet? Nope. Couldn't find any comfort on the internet. But I found some in the Word of God. Here's what the Scriptures say, tell us many times over, and I'm going to give a few samples here of what to expect about living in a world where other people seem to be calling the shots. A couple of years ago I preached from Obadiah. And you remember Edom was uh, oppressing God's people and they dwelt in the mountains. And in that short one chapter book in the Old Testament, verse 3 and 4, here's what God said to them. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says Yahweh. Isaiah 10, speaking of Assyria, starting in verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord, God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrian. He shall strike you with a rod and lift up his staff against you in the manner of Egypt. For yet a very little while, and the indignation will cease, as will my anger in their destruction. Behold the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, will lop off the bow with terror. Those of high stature will be hewn down, and the haughty will be humbled. Daniel 2.21, and he changes the times and the seasons. That fits with our passage today, right? And the next part of that verse, he removes kings and raises up kings. And one more, Psalm 2. Remember, the rulers and judges of the earth want to break God's bonds. They don't want God telling them what to do. They want to be in charge. And here's what God says. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. 
the Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. I've lived long enough to see this happen multiple times throughout the world. Somebody riding high and mighty, lots of power, till tomorrow. And suddenly, things change. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed, happy are all those who put their trust in the Lord. Let us come now to the table with that in mind on this new year as we step out into what we call the unknown. We do so in the arms of the one who knows it all. Amen. Father, we are grateful for all your good gifts. Help us to see your hand in everything, even our trials. But help us to rejoice even more in our joys, in, our, in the blessings, in meals, in conversations, in relationships. Help us to treasure those things as gifts. We do pray for Jake as he departs to, to head to a new job. We pray your blessings on him, that you would first and foremost make him faithful, uh, that he would be a witness to, of Jesus Christ to those around him, that he would uh, find pleasure in his work, and that you would use him for your kingdom. Thank you for, the, for him being with us, and now go with him. Lord, like the shepherds who were abiding in the fields, let us hear your glad, good tidings of great joy. And hearing, may we believe, rejoice, praise, and adore. May our eyes be lifted up to a reconciled Father. Lord, let us embrace this Savior to our hearts, holding him with undying faith, delighting that he is ours and we are his. Teach us to humble ourselves before you and before men. Help us to know how to be servants of all, how to humble ourselves. Bless now our feast and our rest today, and may we rejoice tomorrow as we indeed celebrate uh, the beginning of this new world. Indeed, joy to the world. The Savior reigns. Amen. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen.